Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 4. I don't know about you, but I feel right now a little bit, I feel a little oppressed right now. Um, I don't know, I mean, I'm not, this isn't part of my sermon, I'm just saying as far as in the service, I don't know, I feel like it seems like everything that you had planned out didn't work out how it was, and uh, I just kind of feel like this spirit upon us. Do you kind of feel like that? Like it's like, I don't know what it is, it's, um, and so I, I guess part of that, I think maybe all of us need to come to the place, and even myself, and you kind of come to that place, you say, Lord, I surrender to you, <laughs> and I'm going to submit to you. So I, I pray you'll, in your heart, even this morning, right now, as you come to the preaching of God's word, that that will be the prayer of your heart, and there might be a lot of things going on in your mind, in your life. There's definitely a lot of things going on in our country, and, uh, but would you just focus this time, like, Come to the text of scripture this morning and listen to God. Very intently listen to what God has for you here this morning. We're in 1 Peter chapter number 4. We finally made it to chapter (laughs) 4. Hope you're tracking along with us. We're speaking about uh, suffering and particularly here Peter is equipping the church to suffer. To suffer. And actually started that up in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. You can see that if you go to chapter 3, verse 8, where he, he introduces this section by saying, finally, all of you, and then he's speaking to the church, and then he gives a number of exhortations. And we've been going over these the past couple of weeks. A number of weeks ago, we started in verse 8. We saw they told us that we are to suffer by being like Christ to the church. And then in verse 9, by being like Christ to the world. And then we saw in verse 15, the next really imperative, the command is there to set apart Christ as the Lord of our hearts. And now we're in chapter 4, and we find the next three imperatives, that's what we're going to cover today. One's in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, arm yourself, that's a command. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. So there's the three commands that we're going to look at here this morning. And really the question before us is, how can... The church glorify God while suffering. And you should have received a handout. You can get that out and take notes if you want to. We're going to cover two points this morning, really to continue to answer this question. And the first point is to arm yourself with Christ's resolve. And the second point is to pray with the mindset that the end is near. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7, this is the word of God. So would you stand with me as I read the word? If you're listening at home, if you want to stand as well, you could. And follow along as we read 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let's pray. Father, we believe what we've just read in this text this morning is what you want to speak to us about. So for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, open our hearts to what you have to say. Help us to listen, to obey. And for those without Christ, may this be a call for them. May this be a wake-up call for them to come to faith in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want you to picture the scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was to die. Picture that scene on that probably hillside there in that garden. It was the middle of the night. It was dark. It was probably quiet. His disciples, remember, were asleep. They seemingly didn't care the suffering he was going through and Jesus was on his face and he was crying out to his father. He he knew what was about to come. Soon the disciples would reject him. Soon the soldiers and the religious leaders would mock him, torture him, put him on a cross. And soon he would face the worst suffering of all and that is his father would reject him. His father would pour out his wrath for sin, for the sin of the world upon Jesus. And so there's Jesus in that garden. And remember the wrestling that was taking place in his heart and really the crying, the agony that he was going through. What was his cry? My father, if it's possible, let this cup, and speaking of the cup of God's wrath, let this cup pass from me. And then what did he say? But not what I will but as you will. And he prayed that over and over, at least three times we know he prayed that in that garden there. And that prayer gives a little insight to the wrestling in Jesus' mind. He came as the Savior. That was his mission. That's what we're going to celebrate this next month at Christmas, that he was born to die. He came to glorify his Father by being the substitute for our sins. But that calling was a painful agonizing, dreaded path that Jesus went down. And what got him through it? I mean, here you see his, in that garden, that struggle, what got him through that time to the cross and then to die? Well, Jesus had this resolve to follow his father's will. And you see that in that prayer. Not what I will, but what you will. So this, he had this resolve that he wanted to follow the will of the Father. And today we're studying the resolve of Christ in suffering. And we as the church face suffering. And potentially in the next months, years, more suffering. So how do we prepare for that? How do we go through suffering? How can we glorify God as we go through suffering? And first of all, we are to arm ourselves with Christ's Resolve. Look down in verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh or in the body, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So Peter wants us to consider how Christ suffered and what his thinking was like when he was suffering and to adopt that same view of life for ourselves. In fact, when he says that at the very beginning there in verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, I think he's using this clause to help us remember what he just wrote about in verses 18 through 22. If we look back at verse 18, I think you can see verse 18 really parallels um, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. You can see the parallels there. And actually, this is our outline here this morning. Look at verse 18. He says, for Christ suffered once for sin. So Christ suffered. He, he had this battle against sin for, to do the will of God for he battled, or sorry, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in or by the Spirit. And he had this hope that at the very end, he would be resurrected and vindicated. And sure enough, he was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's saying, arm yourself with this kind of thinking that Jesus had. That word arm there is a military term that implore, employs, I'm sorry, implores a soldier to prepare for battle. Now, if you're a history buff in here and you've studied World War I, you'll probably know that the Russian soldiers, some of them didn't have um, guns. They didn't have enough arms for their soldiers. They had more soldiers than they had weapons. And so there's stories of actually soldiers going into battle and getting other soldiers that have died, getting their their um, arms and their, their weapons for themselves. A soldier going into battle without the proper arms, without being prepared, is a soldier that's preparing to def be defeated, right? I mean, can you imagine being maybe in Russia and going into battle in Russia and you don't have the proper, proper tools to go into battle? Think about what you need as a soldier to fight a war. You need some kind of water. You need boots and clothes and some kind of communication device. Gun, ammo, and the list goes on. And if you were in a harsh, harsh conditions, unprepared against the enemy, then you could fail in your mission and possibly you could die. And so what he's saying here is he's saying you need to picture life like a battle. And you need to arm yourself for, for battle. And what's the battle that we are facing? Oh, I went too fast there. You'll, you'll look forward to this one. What's the battle that we're facing? Well, look back in 1 Peter 2.11. I thought I put these verses up here, but I didn't. So you can look at 1 Peter 2.11. Remember the battle he says in there is that we have this war with the, the sinful passions, the passions in our heart. They're warring against our souls. So there's a war in our souls with sinful passion. And then you can see throughout this, the, the book there's, that the, there's enemies that are coming after us. Sinners are maligning us, are attacking us. And if you look in chapter 3, verse 9, we are to repay them not with evil, but with what? With blessings. So we fight, if you want to say, in the battle with blessing them instead of getting back and getting revenge. I look down in 1 Peter 5, 7. You can see there's another enemy there, and that's Satan. He's like a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. And so you see sin. You see Satan. You see sinners all coming after, the three S's there, all coming after us in this battle on a daily basis. There's, there's a war within, there's a war around us, there's a war behind the scenes. So how do you prepare for this battle? This is what he's telling us to do here, is to arm ourselves with thinking. 
The word thinking there in verse 1 is translated in the King James as mind. If you have an NIV, it's translated as attitude. The NASB translated as purpose. Kind of get the point. It's kind of hard to nail this word down exactly how to translate it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we find the only other time it's used in the scripture. And it's the, the passage that speaks to the word of God. Remember, the word of God is quick, living and active. It's like a sword and it pierces the thoughts and then intents of the heart. So the word intents there, intentions, is the word here for thinking. So, so the basic gist of this word is this, that it's speaking of an inner motivating attitude. An inner motivating attitude. So it's not just that you're, you're thinking something, but it's describing the intentions or the, the mental determination that someone has to do something. I actually think probably a better word than everyone else used, not that I know better than everyone else, but I think it fits with what we're talking about today, is the word resolve, resolutions. There's, if you uh, follow any preachers and through history, you know of a man named Jonathan Edwards, and he had 70 resolutions every morning. He would get up and he'd read through his resolutions, what he was resolved to follow the Lord in. And that's what I think he's talking about here. Resolution or resolve speaks of this definite and earnest decision that you make. People who are resolved have this mental attitude that, that no matter what, they will press on, they'll keep doing what they're going to do, and they're determined, they're resolved. There are many situations in life that I think that we find ourselves in a position where we have to be resolved, and that's where my little needle comes up here. Because for me, that is when uh, I have a shot. So if you've been to the doctor or if you've been to the hospital, even if you have surgery, you might fear this little pointy thing right here, right? And it's such a small little thing, although it looks really big up there. But you know what I'm talking about? When you, they get that needle out and you start getting scared, right? Your heart rate goes up. And I mean, at least it does for me. And, and I just, I, 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 some, actually, I feel like I'm going to faint sometimes. So I can't even look at it. I know I'm a scaredy cat here. And, but there's something about that needle, actually, that I have hope in, right? I mean, yes, there's, there's going to be pain. And yes, it's going to hurt. But actually, it's going to give me something that's going to help me. Especially if I'm going to go under surgery, it's probably going to help me be able to go under better, right? So, I'm, so there's something that's going to help me or numb something. And so I actually, I'm resolved to allow that to happen to me. I have this resolve, this really inner, this inner determination that I'm going to let them do this and allow this pain to come to me. Because one, the pain is going to be only short, right? They say it's going to feel like a little, a little sting. feels like a lot bigger than that. But anyways, a little sting and... But I have a hope that it's going to help me. It's going to be for a short time, and it's actually going to be something that's good for me. So in some sense, you got to grit your teeth and be resolved to take it in the arm, right? Or wherever you got to take it. And we're living in a world that causes pain. Sin causes pain to us. And so to go through that, that suffering and the, the pain of this world, we have to have this resolve. So I think he's telling us here to have this resolve, the resolve that Christ had, and that is a resolve to endure suffering. It's a resolve to endure suffering. Look at verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is this resolve that Christ had. What was Christ's resolve? Well, he came knowing he was going to suffer, and he was determined to go through it, to endure it, he didn't try to escape it. 
He didn't try to take the easy path out, right? Satan even offered some other options. You know, Satan says, oh, if you surrender to me, you know, I'll give it all over to you, Jesus. You don't even have to go through the cross, right? That was the temptation that Jesus faced in that wilderness there. But he, but he knew he had to go through suffering to gain victory. And so we are to arm ourselves with the same thinking. And he says there in verse 1, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, Peter's done it to us again. Here's a verse we wonder what that means, right? At first reading, when you read that, it might be confusing, but as you study it, you can hopefully see a clearer meaning there. If, if you read it at first, you might think, is it possible that we can live a sinless life? Is that possible that, that we as Christians can come to the point where we don't sin anymore? No, that's not possible. We know that for really two reasons. One practical reason is none of us experiencing that in here. And if you testify that's true, we'll ask the people who are living with you and they'll tell us the truth, right? But most importantly, it's because the Bible teaches that's not the case. We all struggle with sin. We will struggle with sin till we die. So, so what is this verse teaching here? Well, there's two really main views and I think it's important to, to say both of them and I'll tell you which one I have. Some people understand this verse um, to teach about a Christian who is suffering because of obedience to Christ. So suffering because of obedience to Christ. So whoever has suffered is speaking of Christian suffering for righteousness. And so that's what he's been talking about in actually the, uh, the book of 1 Peter, right? He's been saying like, you're gonna follow Christ and you're gonna face suffering. And so because you're following Christ, you're obeying him, you've ceased from sin. So during that time of suffering for obedience to Christ, you're ceasing from sin. Does that make sense? So some people say, Kind of the idea is that Peter's teaching that we're all going to suffer and we follow, if we follow Christ, we're all going to suffer and your suffering shows that you're triumphant over sin and you're ceasing from sin. That might be a little confusing, but that's what some people believe. And I, honestly, I think that could be a legitimate perspective. I don't, um, I don't really feel super strong about my position on this, but I'd say that's one. I'm more inclined for the second position and that is to understand this verse is teaching about a person after they die. So suffering in the flesh is paralleled back to chapter 3, verse 18, where Christ suffered and died. And so in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered. What was the end of his suffering? It was death. And then he was, of course, raised to, to new life. So this, their teaching here, is a Christian suffers, he dies, and after death, what happens? He ceases from sin. So and it's actually the word ceases, is a perfect tense. So the idea is that something happens, and then from then on out, this is what happens. So he dies, and then... For the rest of his time in heaven and eternity, he has ceased from sin, right? Because we struggle in this earth with sin, with our sin nature. And if we're following Christ, we're going to suffer. And there's going to be a time when we die. And then we're going to be with Christ forever. When we're with Christ forever, we cease from sin because he has taken our sin nature away and given us his own nature. So I'm more inclined to that last perspective. But I would say this. Either way, what he's teaching here is that you're going to suffer. Whether it be that you are living a Christian life, you're going to face suffering, and during that time you're ceasing from sin, or, or whether it be you live your life for Christ, you follow him, you face suffering, and then you're going to die. His point is this. We're all going to experience suffering for having the name of Jesus Christ. And again, this is what he's been talking about throughout this text. We could look back in 1 Peter 2, 20, 21. He says, we're to do good, we're to suffer, and then what? To endure. And why is that? Because we're called to that. It's what God's called us to do. This is the pattern for the Christian life. We obey Christ, follow him. It's going to cause suffering. And what are we supposed to do afterwards? Quit? No. 
endure because that's what we're called to. And then he goes on to talk about the pattern of Jesus Christ. I mean, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, this is what a disciple does. You come after me, you deny yourself, and you take the easy path, right? No, you take up your cross and you follow him. That includes suffering. In fact, we'll see this when we come back from Christmas in January. This will be our first text we'll go through here. Uh, and that's uh, 1 Peter. I don't have it up here. Sorry about that. 1 Peter, look down at 1 Peter 4, 12. You have to look in your Bible for this one. 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So over and over in 1 Peter, he's saying, listen, don't be surprised by suffering. You're going to suffer. And what's his call for us then? He says, listen, you're going to suffer. Don't be surprised by it, but endure it. Endure it with faith in the Lord. The, the idea that life should be a bed of roses for Christians is actually a false teaching. The scripture does not teach that. Many people have the idea that, that if I go to church and I give and I dot all my Christian I's, no, draw all my, cross all my Christian T's, dot all my Christian I's, there you go, and I do everything perfect, then God will give me everything I want and my life will be great. You know, I'll have everything that I should have to be happy in this material world. But actually, sometimes the gift God gives us is a gift of suffering. And why is that a gift? I think it's because in that time is when God really can weed out some of it. He's weeding out sin in our life. He's weeding out those perspectives that are worldly. In suffering, we can see God's will and his purposes more clearly. And we can gain a deeper longing for him and for what he has prepared for us to come, right? So sometimes suffering in that way is a gift for us. I was reading a story about a lady who was going through some very difficult suffering. Um, I was reading about this about three weeks ago. And her husband wrote this in a blog. And he said his wife said to him, in the midst of her suffering, when she was really having a difficult time, she said, I don't want to waste this suffering. I want to see what God has in it for me. And I think that's someone who has a perspective that is armed with the resolve of Jesus Christ to say, I'm not going to waste this. I actually want to trust God through this. And so we are to endure and grow through the suffering God has for us and not be surprised. And then number two, we're to arm ourselves with Christ's resolve and resolve to fight your sinful desires and follow God's will. Fight your sinful desires and follow God's will. Look at verse two. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. That's that the, less, the rest of your time on earth or in your body on earth. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. If you look down in verse, verse 2, that word live there is in the aorist infinitive, and it indicates this inner decisive Resolution. Again, going back to this idea that I have decided that this is what my life is going to be like. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ in this way. And what is the decision? What is the decisive resolution? That I will live not guided by my human desires, 
but by God's will, but what God desires for me in his word. And, and observe in verse 2 how he, how he words this. Human passions, both those are nouns, and they're actually plural. And then if you look at the will of God, that's actually singular. So the, the plurals, I think, want us to look down in verse 3, where he talks about the Gentiles, in other words, the world and how they live. So the idea is we're to reject the world's ideas, the world's passion, but the singular will here, I think, indicates that he's speaking of God alone. We are to allow God to rule and guide our hearts. We're to allow the will of the Lord to motivate and direct all of our decisions. In other words, there's only one person who should rule what your heart wants to do, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that through his will found in the word of God. I think we're used to in America making decisions based upon what I want, right? You ever been to one of those all-you-can-eat buffets? Do they have those here? I haven't seen those in California. You know, in the South, they're everywhere. Do they have, I don't even know if there is one in Simi Valley here, but you know what I'm talking about? I'm going to educate you in case you don't, okay? It's, it's a place where there's a lot of food that's been sitting out for who knows long, how long, and you can put whatever you want on your plate, and you can put whatever combinations you want. I mean, if you want to have chips and get some soft-served ice cream, put all, I mean, you can do whatever you want. Like you, anything you want on your plate, you can have. You just go up there. If your appetite wants it, you put it on your plate and eat it. You go back with everyone else. You compare your plates. Everyone has different appetites, different things. And you can eat as much as you want. You can sit there, I presume, all day long and eat if you would like to do that. Usually you go out of those places feeling very sick to your stomach and wishing you had never gone in there to begin with. I think actually that kind of picture is, I think, a great one of verses 2 and 3 of how the world views their life. They're, they're directed by their appetites. You know, you see all the fried food and you go, oh, that looks really good, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about when you go to these places? Or I don't know about you, but actually I really like the rolls at these places. Usually I like the rolls. And so you stack your plate with rolls and, but you fill up on bread. That's not really a good thing. It's usually what you do at Olive Garden, you know, and then you don't order very much, take everything else. Oh, anyways, I'm going off the topic here. But you're directed by your appetites. And I think that's what the world does, right? It's like whatever you want, whatever, if you, if you like that, then just go ahead and do it. If, you're, if your heart wants to do that, then, then try it out. And whatever feels good to you, is that, that is what you should do. Let your heart decide and then go for it. But that, I think that's the direct opposite of actually what he's calling us to do in here as Christians. I think probably maybe an illustration for us as Christians is a personal nutritionist. You know what that is? A personal nutritionist? It's actually someone hires someone. Sometimes actually that person's also a chef. But they hire them to pick out all their food and to tell them what they're eating that day. So you don't eat anything without that personal nutritionist telling you what to eat, sometimes actually preparing it for you. And so everything you eat is dictated by that person. Why does a personal nutritionist, that's hard to say, isn't it? Personal nutritionist. Why does that person do that? And why is it probably better to have that kind of person than you know, the old country buffet or something like that. Because it's healthier for you, right? It's actually better for you physically, for your body. And I think essentially what, what we find here, Christ is our spiritual nutritionist. He's saying, be directed by God's will, what I want your heart to choose to do. Follow the will of God. 
What are the human passions there found in verse two? Well, I think he gives examples down in verse three. He lists out these human passions. And so look at verse three. He says that for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The, the time that is past is really a reference to their past life before they were Christians. In other words, they, they, they lived that life of human passion, of desire, of unrestrained desire. They know how empty it is. I think you were filled up enough on that. You know what that was like, how sick that left you, right? And he's saying, that's not how you should live anymore. It's kind of like, you know, going back to the illustration of the buffet. You know, it's like you get out of that place, you feel, oh, I never want to do this again. He's like, you already had your fill of that. <laughs> now you probably should hire a nutritionist, although it's a lot of money, so that maybe don't do that. But spiritually, he's saying, listen, don't follow the desires of the Gentiles. Now, the word Gentiles there doesn't mean this is a Jewish church. This is actually a word that describes here for Peter, people without God. So he's saying, the people without God, the Gentiles, the world, they follow their human passions. And how do those people without God live? Well, he says, it's human passion, or you could say it this way, unrestrained desire, unrestrained desire, unrestrained appetites. And he lists six different items here. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And I think all six of these describe unrestrained desires for sex, addictive substances, and food. The first three there, if you look at your verse, verse the first three, are, I think, are personal desires that are out of control. The last three are unbridled lusts in a social setting, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And for the Greek and Roman culture, Verse three was a vivid de description of their society and actually how they worshiped, not worshiped God, but how they worshiped in pagan temples. Most, if not all, in that society worshiped in pagan temples and they worshiped idols. And the, the worship kind of went something like this. They basically went to these temples and they just were, lived out their unrestrained desires for perversion, for getting smashed with alcohol, binge eating at feasts. The temples were filled with prostitutes and parties. I mean, basically, it was a big frat party in front of an idol. It's kind of how it worked, which is interesting because I think actually their society is not much different than ours. We don't have the idols up, you know. People don't have these stone things they're in front of. They're actually replaced that with themselves. Our society, we worship ourselves. And how does our society live out the worship of self? through following their own human passions, their sinful desires, their unrestrained. And what a society that we see doing that today. Isn't it sad to see our society unrestrained and the farther they go from the Lord, the more they will follow their heart's sinful, their sinful heart's desires. Youth in our society are taught, experiment with your body. Do whatever your heart wants to do. College students fill up on drugs and parties. Adults, many adults medicate their appetites at the altar of TV, binge watching, handheld devices, pornography. And the point is this, is our society has its hearts unleashed unto Satan. But this passage was not written for unbelievers, was it? It was written for who? For us as Christians. And I think we, he, what he's doing here is reminding us this is what the world is like. This is what your life was like before Christ. But he's also reminding us that we need to be resolved 
not to live that way by our human desires, but live in submission to the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with alcohol, but be filled, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are not to live lives that are unrestrained in regard to our inner appetites. We're to say no to lust, sinful lust, and sinful pleasure. So how, how do you apply something like this? And I was thinking, what are some ways I can help us apply this? I think as parents, I thought, what, let's, let's think about what this means for our kids. How do we raise our kids? In Proverbs, uh, there's a proverb that says, train up your child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he will not depart. Which actually, I think, is probably somewhat of a warning. Some people see it as a promise. I don't think it's a promise. I think it's actually more of a warning. That, that the way you train your children when they're younger is generally how they're going to turn out when they're older. So if you train your child to live by his or her unrestrained appetites, particularly in our society, to be entertained all the time, how do you think they're going to live their life as an adult? And if you want your child to learn self-discipline, to be under the control of the Holy Spirit, to God's will, then, then the question must be, like, how do we train them now to prepare them for the life of independence from us and dependence on God? And I, and I think in our society, especially as I've been reading about the, the shutdown and how it's affected kids in the home, you know, children at home, all these kids are homeschooled, <laughs> right? And uh, sitting in front of screens and, um, and just how it's affecting children, a lot of children in depression, a lot of people um, being controlled by substances, getting themselves over to different substances and how sad it is. But even one of the effects, I think, of parenting and something I think as Christians we need to think about is if, if we allow our children to just, if we allow our children to sleep in constantly, to play video games all day, to eat anything they want. In other words, if we, if we operate, even during a shutdown, if we operate with our, allowing our children to just have unrestrained appetites, like you want to eat, eat. If you want, whenever you want to get up, get up. If you train them that way, frankly, how are they going to live when they're adults? Like if you can't get up in the morning when you're 13 years old, what are you, are you going to be able to get up in the morning when you're 23 years old? And some of the people are like, well, they're kids, they're teenagers. But my point is, train up a child in the way he should go, and you're training their appetites. And that's not just for children, it's also for us. We are training our inner appetites. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what controls me? What controls me? I mean, do I eat whatever I want? That's a terrible week to apply this, right? But think about it. I mean, Thanksgiving, right? Because we're going to have these feasts. and So maybe remove that day. I don't know if that's something we're allowed to do. But, but think about it. Like, are you actually self-controlled by the Holy Spirit to not eat food you shouldn't eat? When you're stressed, what do you look to for a fix, if you want to say that? Maybe you go to drink something Maybe you go for, to food. Maybe you go to media. You know, we gather as a church here in the mornings, right? So we come here and get up in the morning. And, and it's interesting because some people really struggle getting up in the morning on Sunday morning and coming to church. It's, which is surprising to me because during the week, I don't think usually people have a struggle with that. <laughs> or maybe they might struggle with it, but they usually get to work on time or get their kids to school on time when there's school in session. Um, but, but I think sometimes we have to ask ourselves the question that when it's time to gather for church, do I allow my human desire to sleep to control me? 
and to hit my alarm? Or do I have the, the Holy Spirit discipline to get up with the resolve to say, I am going to worship Jesus Christ today? And so we have to ask ourselves the question, am, am I living a disciplined life in submission to the will of God? And, I, what, and how do you do that? I mean, I think that's the thing that's sometimes hard. Like, how do you do that? Well, we're going to look at that in verse 7. You can just look at it real quickly if you want to, just to kind of pin it in your mind. Because he says we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded for what? For the sake of your prayer. So self-control, serious-mindedness, sober-mindedness is intricately tied to prayer. And so it comes through a relationship with God and depending on him. But we'll keep going through our outline here. And the next point we have here is we're to arm ourselves with a resolve to regard the opinion of the judge, that's Jesus Christ, over the opinion of the world. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they, that's the world, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The word surprise there is a present tense. This is like an ongoing thing. It's actually a word that if it's translated in its noun form, it's the word translated strangers. In fact, if you have a King James, it's, it's the, word, the translation is think it not strange. So the idea is weird, strange, foreigner. It's like people are looking at you and seeing your habits and your lifestyle as a Christian and say, you're, you're like, you're weirdo. Like you're foreign, you're different. You're not from around here. Not literally from around here, but it's like there's something strange about you. And this is increasingly the attitude, isn't it, towards Christians in our society. And I frankly think this is going to be, this, there's, a, there's a tidal wave of this coming towards Christians in America. I think it's some of its policy coming, it's going to come from our federal government, even our state government here. But I think some of it's actually even personal, very personal. There's this flood of opposition to Christians, this surprise, this like strange, like you're weird, you're the outsiders, and in some sense, we are because we're not from this world, right? We, are, we belong to the king who rules the world that we are going to. Christian morals run against the grain of our immoral, unrestrained society. And so look at verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when, they do not, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. I love that picture there, flood of debauchery debauchery, a flood of wickedness. What a great description of the world being carried away by their sinful desires. You ever been in a, in a river that's maybe it's just, just rain and it's a rushing river and, uh, and you actually have maybe had times in that river where you, you know, maybe it was too deep where you were able, weren't able to touch the ground or maybe it was going so fast you didn't have control. Um, I've been on a number of tubing trips and things like that when you get a tube you go down the river or you're in a canoe or whatever and there's times when you jump out and there's been times when I've gone and we've had too much rain especially if you're in the mountains like North Carolina or something and the rain comes down and then these you have these winding rivers and there's actually that's, that's actually a pretty scary thing to be in one of those rivers and realize you don't have control I mean for one you don't know what's ahead the rocks and all that kind of stuff and and I think that's really the picture that he is giving here of a, a rushing flooded river is a great picture of of the world and the sinful desires that are carrying the world along. And maybe even the idea you could picture in your mind is rushing river and there's a waterfalls ahead, right? People don't know it's there. There's a destruction coming, but they're being carried along by this flood of debauchery of sinful desires. 
And when we as Christians step in that, just because you're a Christian, you can't think you're safe from being carried away, right? We can step in that. We can find ourselves being carried away in the current of sinful desire. And I guess I would say this. There probably are some of us in here, maybe some that are listening online. I think you find yourself right now in that rushing flood of sinful desires and you realize I can't stop. In fact, the world actually is in that situation. They just don't realize it. They, they think they probably can stop. Or, But sometimes as Christians, you come to that place where you realize I'm in a situation where I'm in bondage or something. I'm, I'm being rushed down the river of life by sinful desire. And I guess my call for you as a believer is please get help. Jesus needs to rescue you in this. And if you're a Christian, he's already rescued you, but you need to understand how he can rescue you in this situation Please get a counselor to help you. I would love to help you. Please don't allow embarrassment or anything else like that to stop you from getting help. But the flood of desires of the world and really even the opinions of the world can easily just carry us away. They're so powerful. So look at the end of verse 4, what he says. They're carried away in this flood of debauchery. And what do they do? They, therefore, malign you. They reject you. You're not a part of their world so they reject you for that so we are to resolve not to regard the opinion of the world and look at verse five he says why is that because they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead every person every person will stand before jesus christ as he will be our judge he came as our Savior, there's a day when we'll stand, he'll, we'll stand before him and he will be our judge. Now, actually, the past couple weeks, I've had two people ask me about this particular thing right here, about the judgment of the Lord. So during a Sunday class hour, we're actually going to look at this and look at the, the judgments of Christ um, that he presides over. But Christ first came as Savior, and next he's coming as judge. It's his second coming. So he's ready, in verse 5, to judge the living and the dead. And then look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached. So why was the gospel preached? Because every person will stand before the judge, Jesus Christ, even to those who are dead. Now, who are those who are dead? Again, another gift by Peter here for us to talk through. <laughs> but who are those people who are dead? Well, Peter, Peter's not saying the gospel was preached to people in hell. Peter's doing something similar to what we see in chapter 3, verse 19. So do I have it up here? I don't have it up here. That's okay. So in chapter 3, verse 19, if you look over there, you can see there are those who are dead there, and those were people uh, who are now spirits in hell, but they were alive at one point, and the gospel was preached to them by Noah. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, in other words, God can save you, was preached through Noah to those people. They rejected the gospel. Now they're in hell. Then if you look at verse four, or chapter 4, verse 6, here are people who are dead, but these are believers. That means they're with the Lord, right? So their bodies are dead, but they heard the gospel while they were alive on earth. They believed the gospel. They were saved. And they're dead, but they're not in hell. They're in God's presence. So if you see down in verse 6, he says, they're, they will be judged in the flesh the way people are. In other words, they're, they're going to be judged for their life, their life in the flesh or life in their body on earth. So every person will be judged for their life in the flesh or life in the body, but these people believe the gospel. 
And so they will stand before Christ the judge and Christ will actually vindicate them and resurrect them to new life. And you see that, therefore, at the end of verse 6, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. In other words, they're going to be resurrected, they're going to be vindicated like Christ was in chapter 3, verse 18. And so look at verse 6. Let me read it to help you understand it and include some other words that maybe help you get the gist of it. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus Christ, was preached even to those, those are Christians, who are, and you could insert in there, now dead, that though judged in the body the way people are for their life on earth, they might live by the Spirit the way God does. And the point Peter's making is this. All people will stand before Jesus Christ. Verse 5, there are people who will stand before Jesus and they rejected the gospel they're going to face the punishment of judgment. Those are people who follow their own sinful passion. Verse 6, there are people who hear the gospel. They respond in faith, and they will be vindicated with resurrection. And, and therefore, here's the kind of conclusion I want you to come to. Resolve to regard the opinion of the judge over the opinion of the world. All of us will stand before Christ, but the opinions of the world don't matter compared to the opinions of Christ. And it's important that we live our time on earth here in light of the view that we will stand before Jesus Christ. And then last, and this is our final conclusion here, let's pray with a mindset that the end is near. Verse seven says, the end of all things is at hand. Do you believe that's true? The end of all things is at hand. He's saying, listen, Christ the judge is about to come back. So what should you do? Therefore, be self-controlled. That's ordering your thinking. Be sober-minded. That's be serious for the sake or for the purpose of your prayers, for the purpose of praying. If you really believed Jesus was gonna come back today, how would that change your day? I read about an old preacher who said, was asked this question. I should say an old farmer, not an old preacher, an old farmer who was asked this question. He was an old godly Christian farmer and someone said to him, if you knew Christ was gonna come back tomorrow, what would you do different today? He said, I would get up early, I'd read my Bible, I'd pray, I'd get breakfast, I'd go plant the garden, I'd go to town, get groceries for next week and along the way tell people about Jesus Christ. In other words, I wouldn't change a thing. I thought, you know what? I think that's a good perspective to have. In other words, it shouldn't be, oh, if Christ is coming to come tomorrow, I'm going to do something different. It's actually, if Christ is coming tomorrow, I should be living every day like that. And so, what does that mean? We should get serious, order our thoughts, order our life in a way that we are serious about his coming, which means what? We pray. We pray to him. We pray to him. I told you earlier about Jonathan Edwards, a preacher that lived in the 1700s. And every morning he'd get up and he'd read through resolutions he had to follow Christ. And this is what he would pray before he went through these resolutions. He'd say, because I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. I think that's a great prayer for us here this morning to pray that Christ will give us the grace by his Holy Spirit to help us be resolved to follow him. Arm yourself with Christ's resolve. Resolve to endure suffering, 
to fight your sinful passions and follow Christ's will and resolve to regard the opinion of the judge over the opinion of the world. Do you feel like you're ready to fight? Do you feel ready to fight this week? It's going to be a battle. Let's arm ourselves with the resolution to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the music team to come up at this time. And again, I'd like to end the service like we begin it, and that is a personal time of prayer to the Lord. Would you pray to the Lord right now? Take the truth of God's word this morning and cry out to God with these resolutions to endure suffering, to follow his will, to regard the opinion of Christ more than the opinions of others. We invite you, believer, to go to the Lord in prayer about that right now. If you're in here without Christ, I want to say very confidently to you that there will be a day when you will stand before Christ. And if you have not believed, repented and believed in him on earth, then you will find yourself in a place of judgment and condemnation before Christ, the Holy One. But today he's offering you a gift and that is of eternal life if you turn to him. So would you turn to Jesus Christ today, repent and believe the gospel. Our hearts fall in line, Lord, with what John, Jonathan Edwards said, and that is we want to be resolved to follow you, but we cannot do it without your grace, without your Holy Spirit's help. I pray for us as we go through this week, and I frankly think as we go through the next couple of years and face more and more difficulty for the name of Christ, I pray you'll arm us, arm parents in here, grandparents, and youth to follow you. May we be resolved. May we be resolved to walk the path that Christ walked. Grace and grace and humility with determination to do the will of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.